Hey everyone, welcome to Wire Talks, the Wire podcast where we discuss all things crypto. So whether you're a veteran or crypto noob, we're all learning together. This is your host, Thomas Scaria. I'm joined by my co-host, Louis Abood. Louis, thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Awesome. And today we continue our soiree into New York. We're taking the podcast on the road, as many of our listeners know already. And we're joined by the co-founders of UMA. We have Hart Lumbar, CEO of UMA. Welcome, Hart. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Louis. And we have Allison Liu, COO of UMA. Allison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks so much for your patience in setting up. And, you know, I know it took a little bit longer than anticipated. And like I mentioned, we are taking the podcast on the road. So things go wrong at the last minute. And, and, I, and I really appreciate your candor and just the whole setup and ramp up process. This is fun, man. I love plugging in wires. I, I do have to say, Hart, if this does not work out for you, if UMA does not work out for you, you definitely have a future in some sort of AV setup <laughs> hardware technology play. Thanks, Maybe Thomas. a pass two would be my guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a story there. We'll have to dig a little bit deeper. Okay, so I'm going to try to define UMA. And I think it should be noted that we're in a room full of traders, ex-traders at least, and, and current traders. So we will try to avoid a little bit of financial jargon and define some more complicated terms along the way. But as our listeners know, this podcast is really meant for more advanced subject matters in crypto. And that is what Google is for. If you want to stop and Google something, I always advise that. Investopedia is a fantastic resource. That's right. That's right. So at a high level, and Hard and Allison, I'm sure you will correct me as we get a little bit deeper into the podcast. At a high level, UMA is borrowing concepts, right, from the traditional derivative space, particularly the concept of the total return swap, which is a financial instrument really marketed by big name Wall Street banks to traditionally hedge funds and other financial institutions that want to have price exposure to any asset in the world in a very capital efficient manner. We'll go over what that structure really means in detail. But basically, UMA is putting that concept on the blockchain and making it available to everyday consumers, I suppose. So before we get into the details of the protocol, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you guys. Uh, let's start with Hart and go to Allison. Hart, can you tell me a little bit about your background? I know this is not your first rodeo in, in startup universe. Uh, wh what did you do in startup world before and how did you discover crypto? Yeah, totally. So, uh, I mean, I come from a technical background. I studied computer science and ended up as a interest rate trader for uh, almost eight years at Goldman Sachs. That's actually where I discovered crypto at the end of my time there. I, I overlapped with Fred Ersom from Coinbase, and he introduced me to Bitcoin relatively early. I left uh, Goldman in 2013 and started a fintech business, a personal finance app called Openfolio. And yeah, that was my first foray into the startup scene. And that business was acquired about a year and a half ago and left me free to go deep into crypto. Awesome. And Allison, I know uh, you worked on a, a fintech startup prior to this as well. I'd love to learn a little bit more about that and, and what you did prior to that and how you discovered crypto. Yeah. So Hart and I actually overlapped for five years as traders at Goldman, literally elbow to elbow. And similarly to Hart, you know, I'm kind of a, a builder at heart um, and wanted to build something of value over time rather than see my PL as a trader reset to zero every year. So I left Goldman a couple years after Hart. It was an early stage employee at a mobile lending startup called Tala, which is operating in emerging market countries around the world, and got to see firsthand retail financial services and how they were administered in many of these countries that kind of have uh, weaker institutions or weaker infrastructure. And then 
probably 2016, 2017, I started to go down the crypto rabbit hole pretty hard and finally decided when Heart actually became available to work on a new project again, that it would be a really good time to apply my skills full time and also put the team back together. Allison, I'm actually curious. So you have experience in the institutional trading realm, and you also have experience dealing with consumers in emerging markets. Did that confluence help you define the mission for UMA and like identify a need there? I think what it was for me is that I kind of got to see two ends of the extreme when it came to financial infrastructure. One that was highly, highly developed and relatively efficient for people who could access it in the Western world, and one that was just completely underdeveloped and undergoverned in the developing world. And what I came to see was that you know the problem wasn't going to solve itself without any catalyst or people working on it more directly or in a different way. Um, and so I saw you know this blockchain, decentralized ledger, crypto stuff as being a way of catalyzing that change. Mm-hmm. Of your prior experiences, how did you identify the opportunity and need for a system like UMA? You know, when you look at financial services today, they're just shockingly regional. It's really funny when you think about this internet age we live in where information is available everywhere and you can literally access any bit of knowledge from any corner of the globe. But then you go and you look at financial product and it's not available in that many places unless you are extremely wealthy. If you're very, very rich, fine. You can go and like get served pretty much anywhere. But if you're even upper middle class in many regions of the world, the financial services you can access are shockingly limited. And that's because there isn't any like global protocol that actually lets you tap into financial product. Wall Street infrastructure is geographically constrained, right? If you are trying to buy S&P 500 ETF, you basically need some sort of bank account or or relationship with a broker here in, in the US. So this extremely wealthy person that you're talking about in an emerging market or developed country that's not uh, the US, how do they go about accessing the American market? Well, they go and literally set up an American brokerage account mm-hmm. or have an international broker that is willing to set up an American brokerage account for them because they're wealthy enough, they can pay to do that. But for everybody else, the option doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. What about means of getting synthetic exposure in a centralized manner? I know there is a whole world of different trading venues and different technologies that have popped up that in a regulatory landscape here in the US would never fly, but people in emerging markets do have access to that. Are you are you following that closely? Yeah. So there's like a world of uh, CFD providers. This mm-hmm. is a type of derivative product that's popular really outside the US. It stands for contract for difference. These are basically agreements that are derivative agreements where people pay the change in the value of, of some mm-hmm. asset. There are a number of CFD providers that are, generally speaking, the, the CFD brokers that are highly centralized are um, relatively shady operators who have high leverage and it's more of a gambling-like mm-hmm. feel. Um, Bucket shop, I believe, is the, the common term. <laughs> Louis, from like Australia, this is a much more common thing in Australia. These are all degenerate gamblers. Yeah. <laughs> You're better than most, man. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, those types of products do exist. But when you really try to get into something that has some like substance behind it, something that is uh, you can actually like, hey, this thing is going to be there when I wake up tomorrow morning or next year or next month, that type of product doesn't exist. As an example, actually, CFD products, they actually have holding limits. 
Allison told me about this recently. I didn't even realize this, but you can't actually hold the CFD trade for too long before they force you to close your position. Hmm. So it's really a speculative product. Hmm. Yeah. Now's a good time as ever to talk about at a high level, what does UMA really stand for? What's the mission and what's the impact you're hoping to create? Allison, if you want to take this one. Yeah, sure. We're very much a mission-oriented company, and our mission is right there in our name. It's to enable universal market access. This means building a digital-first global protocol for risk transfer. Got it. And how have you designed this protocol on Ethereum to get people synthetic exposure to any asset in the world? So going back to your your analogy to a total return swap, I think it's a good nerdy finance analogy for what we're doing. Yeah, now's a good time to probably define that uh, as well. I guess I'll give it a shot. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, it is somewhere deep in my CFA textbook. And I think uh-huh. I did trade some of these when I was back at City. So total return swap is a means of getting exposure to really any sort of asset with some sort of price feed. Financial institutions use this to hedge interest rates, to get uh, long exposure to market indices. Like even if you wanted exposure to real estate index or some sort of private equity index, some bank can construct this for you. And the banks are the market makers of total return swaps. A client of a bank, let's say you're a hedge fund, will come and say you want to go long S&P 500. Okay. And the bank will take the other side of the trade and go short and they will hedge their exposure using their balance sheet somewhere or another. So now this hedge fund is long S&P 500, but the market maker wants to get compensated for making the market, right? So the hedge fund will also pay some sort of carry, some sort of interest. It could be over months. It could be you know, in a monthly structure. It could be in a yearly structure. It depends on how the deal was consummated. And those interest payments are meant to pad the market maker's position and enable him to secure borrow, really, to hedge uh, in the open market. Did I do a good job of doing that? Yeah, I might not use the word pad for the market maker. <laughs> but um, uh, Make ridiculous amounts of money? <laughs> no, uh, what I'd even do to kind of generalize that or to abstract it away. Effectively, you and I can enter into a legal agreement to trade risk on whatever it might be. Like you said, real estate, change in price of real estate, gold, whatever else. And if you keep it super abstract at that level, this is a really useful concept because the two of us can enter into a super flexible legal contract that lets us bet, trade, hedge, whatever we want. And now when you start thinking about, well, wait, if that existed for everybody, then you really would have a global means to access financial markets. Now, somebody in East Africa or wherever it might be, right, would be able to enter into this legal agreement to do this. And that would be super powerful. Problem is you can't do that because, well, this is a a type of technology, a type of risk transfer, a type of infrastructure that's only accessible to the big institutions out there. The ultra, ultra wealthy. We're not even talking about individuals. We're talking about financial institutions. I think the minimum size to put this on when I was at City was at least a million bucks. And then you'd have to go syndicate it with a bunch of other clients and get to probably a you know $20 million at least. Well, when you were at Goldman, what? Well, it's just, yeah, it's like- Same sort of story. Yeah, yeah. Institutional only. So why is that, right? Well, this legal agreement, this total return swap or this derivative agreement between the two of us, it's only useful to the two of us if we believe it's going to be honored. So how do we go about securing that contract? There's two mechanisms in the classic world. There's margining. So we post and redeem collateral as the value of that contract changes. And there's legal recourse, where you basically sue my ass if I don't follow terms of trade. 
So legal recourse is expensive. And the reason why you can't write these with average person XYZ is that they're not like within a legal jurisdiction that you respect. It's not worth your time to do this. And so this is just an institutional method of risk transfer. It's not accessible to a consumer level. What's really cool about this blockchain thing is it provides us with the tools to reimagine how that works and actually make that type of trading, that type of risk transfer far, far more accessible at a much lower cost. Go into how that works too. Yeah. So the elegance of this structure is a couple things. One, you are posting margin to essentially collateralize your position, but not fully collateralize your position, right? So the elegance is really in the capital efficiency of the structure. In the way you've constructed it, who are the market makers and what is the collateral that is supposed to be posted? And I'd love to get in the details of what happens in the event of a margin call and things like that. Yeah, let's let's go a bit deeper on how it would work. So sure. in the traditional swap derivative agreement, you can move money at best once a day. And it's pretty slow. Like you so your margin, your margin calls, your ability to remargin this contract, you can only do it on a daily basis. And so in order to make that contract be capital efficient, you need legal recourse you need to be able to have a backup mechanism of securing that agreement, of ensuring your counterparty is going to pay up. But on the blockchain, we can do this quite differently. So let's say we can move money within a five-minute window. Let's just say that's our time to finality, move, move something of value. We can then use that feature to remargin our contract on a much, much, much more frequent basis. And conceptually, if you theoretically imagine where this goes, if we could have continuous real-time margining, we could secure that agreement with just margin alone. We would never need any legal recourse. We would just be able to move money as the value of that contract changes in real time. Let's say you're long S&P 500 and it's moving in your direction, right? You wouldn't have to supply any more margin to keep that contract alive. Only the short side would be constantly topping up. That's right. So let's go back and say that um, we can move money in a five-minute window. Well, Let's now say that uh, both sides of the market, the long and the short, think the S&P 500 will never move more than 10% in, say, a five-minute period, just as a, as a hypothetical assumption. What we can then do is design a contract, design a smart contract, where the short side is required to maintain at least 10% of the current notional, current value of that contract at all points in time, or both sides are. And so as this market moves in the long's favor, the short needs to keep adding in more money to maintain that 10% margin requirement. And if they don't, they default and they lose their margin to the other side as a penalty. So now, as long as the S&P 500 doesn't move more than 10% in a five-minute window, the short has an economic incentive to continuously pay into that contract and remargin it and make sure they stay good on their terms of trade. Mm -hmm. Well, both sides do, but... Technically speaking, what you're describing here is basically a whole bunch of calculations as to here's what the price is and this is what you need to post as margin or what you can redeem from the margin account if the position's moving in your favor. And that sounds like uh, a bit computationally intensive. So how do you deal with that? Well, you can scale this to make the computations make sense based on your transaction costs and, and the efficiency of your blockchain. So, for example, in an ideal case, you're doing state updates on all those computations on a super frequent basis. But on blockchains today, let's say Ethereum, that would be too expensive. So instead, what you can do is design your margin requirements to be broader. So it requires more capital, 
but you would need to make those updates on a less frequent basis. So you can make those updates daily or weekly even. Yeah. So in the total return swap analogy, there's a series of cash flows involved like Louis was alluding to. There's a cash flow associated with the total return of the asset that you are following. So the price that you're really tracking. So that includes the interest that could be associated with that asset and also just the change in price. Also, there's a negative cash flow, at least from the market makers, well, from the guy who's going long, I suppose, person who has a synthetic exposure. There's a negative cash flow that you have to pay to the market maker. And all of this is dwindled down into some sort of position, right? That's represented in the UMA product, in the UMA synthetic asset, I suppose. How does that get priced into the actual asset that you will be issuing as a position on this trade? I think I'd walk back from the details around the total return swap and the cash flows and all that. Like technically you're all correct on that's all correct on how a total return swap works, but I would just simplify it for our use case where it's it's not an exact parallel to how yeah. that works. So all we're really looking here is like Thomas, you and I want to make a bet on the S&P 500. You want to go long, I want to go short. We're agreeing to a margin requirement on this trade. I'm going to be what we're calling the token sponsor. I'm going to be the short side of this trade. And I'm actually going to create a token that represents the long side of the trade that you get to purchase. Mm. So what we're doing here, the difference and the, the evolution um, is that rather than having this be a, a bilateral swap between the two of us, we actually take one side of the swap, in this case, the long side, and fully collateralize it so that that long position doesn't need to remargin, doesn't need to stay online. They can just go away, go offline. And if we take that long position and then wrap it in a token standard like the ERC-20 standard, you can just sit there and own this ERC-20 token that represents the synthetic exposure to the underlying derivative. So here this would be a token that represents synthetic exposure to the S&P 500. And I'm sitting here levered short as the token sponsor uh, with this 10% margin requirement in this example, promising that I'm going to continue to pay in the total return of the S&P 500 into the smart contract to make sure you are fully collateralized. I think I was misunderstanding Uma for a second. So the total return swap analogy does kind of like fall apart when you think about it from the Umra perspective, because the token sponsor, you're not interacting directly with the market maker. The token sponsor is dealing in primary issuance and just issuing these synthetic assets to the open market. And they're, you know, traded uh, amongst each other. Am I kind of following? Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. So stepping back again, kind of holistically, very simplistically, you have a bilateral derivative. There's a long and a short. And all we've done is we've allowed the short side to be levered and we've collateralized the long side at 100%. In collateralizing at 100%, we can tokenize the long side, make that tradable, fungible, you know, really easy for a retail consumer to understand. And on the short side, by maintaining it, keeping it as a levered instrument, it's something that is uh, more palatable from a capital management perspective for a professional market maker or a liquidity provider to step in on. So both sides ultimately get what they want. You have a levered short side that is maintaining this exposure in return for you know being paid effectively some sort of a premium or funding rate. And then you have a synthetic long side that's now able to access this exposure where they could not access it previously. And then 
incorporating, you know, all these things that you talked about, the details of the financial engineering of, you know, the funding rate and um, any other transfer payments that need to be made. One way of thinking about it is simply looking at the difference between the market price of the tokenized version of the asset versus kind of the quote unquote real version of the asset. And that delta kind of captures how the market values being able to have that position in this tokenized uh, form. Yeah, I think I was pigeonholing UMA as more of like a bilateral relationship, a one-to-one or one-to-many, but this is more of a many-to-many relationship, right? Can there be several token sponsors behind a single synthetic asset? That's where we're going. Okay. Sorry, Allison. Yeah, so right now it's actually a one-to-many where it's one token sponsor to a bunch of tokens that a bunch of people can hold. And then the next iteration of our contract will be many-to-many, as you stated. The one other thing I'd add, Thomas, that I think is just really actually a kind of cool concept. Um, if you think of a bilateral derivative agreement classically, like from your time at Citi, you very clearly know who the counterparties are. It's Citibank facing hedge fund XYZ, right? And there's no concept of hedge fund XYZ being able to trade their side of that agreement to somebody else because Citibank has counterparty risk to hedge fund XYZ. Citibank would never allow them to trade it to hedge fund ABC um, or individual ABC. But what's really crazy about this design when you're just using economic incentives to compel people to make good on these derivative contracts, you don't care who your counterparty is. So all of a sudden you can make the exposure tradable. And this is a very kind of bizarre concept that doesn't have a classic like fiat world concept where the derivative exposure can be tokenized and made into this tradable asset that wasn't really doable before. And is that, I mean, just with all that in mind, right, let's say people use this software and it grows to some level of maturity, do you expect there to be a few kind of core market participants that, you know, operating at scale, that, you know, professional market makers have a lower cost of capital? Would you expect that to be like the topology of the network once it's sort of more mature to have that kind of more like a hub and spoke style design? Yeah, I think that is our hypothesis. Mm. And, you know, looking at OTC markets in traditional like swaps land or derivatives land like at City or Goldman, that is also the market structure. You have a handful of dealers that become the liquidity provider for all of the end users. And those dealers are market makers really develop expertise and are very know how to hedge, make markets, provide liquidity in a very uh, efficient way. People face off against them. And what's really interesting about the structure is I think OTC markets don't get given enough credit. OTC markets can be hyper-efficient and very, very competitive. Mm. People tend to assume that you need a centralized order book like on a stock exchange in order to have supply and demand fairly match off. But it can really be shown that if you have a handful of, uh, of competent market makers, four or more people in competition pricing trades, you can actually get super efficient pricing. So I think the market structure does look a little bit more like that. That's our hypothesis. And to add on, um, part of the evidence for this also comes from, you know, fiat world peer-to-peer markets. Things like London Club, for example, have ultimately ended up institutionalizing where the major capital contributors ended up being institutional. One thing that's super cool, though, about what we're doing and use cases that could be enabled by putting it on the blockchain is that these, you know, centralized institutions that get the expertise to facilitate this hub and spoke model actually don't need to be people or institutions at all. They could be DAOs or smart contracts or any number of things, depending on how the market develops. Presumably, though, in so like let's take the S and P five hundred example. 
these professional market makers are going to have to have some connection to the fiat world to hedge their risk, etc. Right. So how do they deal with a situation where they're effectively creating these products using your technology and then all of these unknown counterparties are taking the other side of that because they're going to have some requirements, legal requirements to sort of know who they're dealing with, etc. You're asking good questions, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be totally blunt, we don't have that all figured out yet mm. in early days and we'll, we'll see how it all develops. These are a lot of the challenges that get posed by building financial products on a pseudo-anonymous blockchain where it can be difficult to know who your counterparty is. Mm. And so, you know, we take all the regulation and all that, all that kind of stuff very seriously, but it's honestly unclear how to answer how KYC should work if you have pseudo-anonymous assets. Do you think it's a, a question of what the market maker should be doing or whether this is something you could create solutions within the technology to enable these problems to be solved? There is a business called Sendwire that <laughs> does some of this. Sorry. I wasn't trying to reverse broke out. Yeah. <laughs> Allison? No, I mean, I think that the technology certainly has the capability to evolve if we had more regulatory clarity and if this clarity existed not in a patchwork of um, jurisdictions, but, you know, really at a global level. But I mean, like, OTC dealers today in crypto deal with this, right? They trade OTC in Bitcoin versus dollar against known counterparties. And if those counterparties turn around and trade against somebody that they're not supposed to be trading against, like there's no way for that OTC dealer to know. Mm -hmm. And your problem isn't native only to UMA, right? These are problems within all of DeFi sort of questions that need answers from regulators. Uh, I'm sure Uniswap is thinking about this. I'm sure Compound is thinking about this just a slush fund in a smart contract, right? No one knows who's in there, if they're KYC ML'd or not. Well, they're certainly not KYC ML'd, if they could be properly KYC ML'd or not. Sounds um, like uh, there should be a business supporting these DeFi <laughs> projects. <laughs> we'll, we'll take this back to the office and go to the drawing yeah. board, certainly. Do, do you see any risks, if the system's working properly, the financial incentives and the, the technical enforcement of the terms of the contract effectively should protect all of the parties, right? And there shouldn't ever be a need to try and find out who they are and go after them in a legal sense. But if you do start getting basically a few large market makers, are there any tail risks that you see that could occur where there isn't really a technology solution for that at the moment? Do you have an example in mind? Uh, I didn't, actually. I was hoping that you had one. <laughs> well, I think maybe like one way to think about it is like too big to fail, right? Yeah. So we heard that phrase from the fiat world. And if you want to think about whether or not that could happen in this um, blockchain DeFi world as well, I, I think that that is a real risk. And that's kind of why you have to build a system that has fail-safes or backups against that. So as an example, one of the biggest DeFi projects today, MakerDAO, if there is a given CDP that is too big to be absorbed by the market, then what the maker system would actually do is eventually dilute maker holders in order to ultimately make synthetic asset owners die holders whole. And so in our you know future iterations of a many-to-many -many token sponsor to token holder system, we can introduce not exactly the same, but kind of conceptually similar um, mechanisms where there are kind of third-party entities or funds that have the capability and scale to handle those types of uh, scenarios. And just while we're talking about risk, how do you think about the collateral types to use within the system? You know, we've got a myriad of stable coins all with their own different kind of risks. 
I mean, I know you've got a product that has been created with the technology out there. What is that using as collateral? How does that work? So the the first token using our technology, this token tracking the 500 largest stocks of the U.S. stock market, commonly referred to as the S&P 500, but TM, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> TM. Um, thank you. So this token using this technology, the token creator used Dai as the margin currency. But the technology is written super flexibly. Mm -hmm. So we support any ERC-20 or Ethereum itself as the margin currency. And really, we're designed to let this technology create the products that the users ultimately want. So it really comes back to what is the collateral that the end user, the purchaser of these tokens, uh, wants to have backing up their position. All right. I would love to move this forward to kind of what the protocol is all about, how the actual technology system is architected, how the smart contracts connect with each other. Can you give us a lay of the land of the tech? Sure. I mean, we've, we've kind of highlighted a lot of the core concepts already. And really what this is, is uh, the core technology here is this um, tokenized derivative smart contract, where what we're calling a token sponsor chooses a price feed. So let's pick what we want to make an asset for, a token for. It could be the S&P 500, it could be gold, it could be Bitcoin, it could be levered versions of those things, it could be inverse versions of those things. So it could be 3x inverse Bitcoin as a token. It could be indices. We could make an index of top 50 assets on coin market cap. We could take carbon credits. Like It's very flexible that way. So we have a price feed. We have a token sponsor. Token sponsor defines some terms around the risk limits or the effectively the volatility of this asset class. So we're calling this our margin requirement. In this US stocks token that was created by a third party to track something like the S&P 500, that margin requirement is 8.5%. Um, that was just an analysis around what the worst case volatility of the S&P 500 could be, and it's quite conservative. And then the token sponsor goes, they collateralize this contract, they put in their position on the short side, which is their promise, uh, their, their margin requirement. They put in 100% of the collateral on the long side, and they create these tokens. The token sponsor can then go and sell these tokens to third parties who then have synthetic exposure to whatever the underlying derivative is. Mm -hmm. And I think the trend of DeFi protocols is definitely going towards more and more tokenization. But you guys were fairly early to start designing in that space. Why was tokenization so obvious and important? And why was adhering to the ERC-20 standard just, just a no-brainer for you guys? I mean, there's so much infrastructure built around ERC-20 now. And weirdly enough, ERC-20 has almost become a consumer-facing brand where it feels a little safer if it's an ERC-20 standard. But, you know, when I say infrastructure, I mean any exchange now can support ERC-20 in a one-click listing. Any wallet can support ERC-20, again, with a very similar one-click listing. And users kind of understand it. So we felt that it was really the easiest way for people to wrap their heads around, well, oh, I can get price exposure to a stock index in the form of a token. That makes sense to me. And we also have this uh, concept of composability, right? Theoretically, the ERC-20s could be packaged up into like a set protocol basket or things of that nature. Is there anything that you're interested to see along those lines? I mean, I think all of it, you know, like the fact that we can create ERC-20 tokens that can be built into a set basket or can be added to compound, lent on compound, or it could be collateral in Dharma, or, you know, can all be collateral in multi-collateral die. Like 
hopefully the bet in the DeFi space is that there is a flywheel that it's going to start turning and there is going to be these Lego blocks that people can put together in ways that are innovative and exciting. Yeah, we've talked about this before hard. It's something that I'm particularly excited about. You know, we just caught up with Robert from Compound last week. He's getting ready to launch C tokens, uh, which yep. is V2 of their protocol, which is basically represents uh, the token represents the principal and, and accrued interest and accumulating interest on their money market positions. Uh, you have Uniswaps, uh, liquidity tokens, which represent, you know, the claims to profit and whatnot there. And of course, we have UMA's synthetic tokens and uh, market protocol has CFD tokens. And it's all looking like these components that we're used to in the traditional fiat world are akin to them. And of course, now we have set as well. And yeah, there's going to be a world where there's a, sort of a structured finance revolution, if you will, happening natively on Ethereum. So if we just go back to the margining aspect, you know, people are going to create all weird and wonderful products using this technology, right? And some of them are going to be a bit crazy. Like somebody's going to create a 100x leverage XIV contract or something to that <laughs> nature, right? That things that are definitely bound to to blow up, but that's, you know, the nature of open finance. People can do what they want. How do you deal with the situation where, you know, let's say I've got a position, let's just say synthetic Bitcoin to make it simple. And I wake up, let's say I'm using UMA to hedge. So I'm shorting Bitcoin through UMA. And I wake up and my account of parties defaulted. And I found out that I'm not hedged anymore and the market's moving against me. Obviously, there are limitations to what you can achieve with this margining aspect, but are there possible technology solutions to ensure that you're always protected or like you can recreate the same risk if the counterparty defaults? How do you guys think about that? Like the continuity of the risk? Yeah, I can tell you come from a traditional finance background, Louis, um, <laughs> but these are really real questions. So call it the nerdy finance term would be the re replacement cost of your risk. Mm. And you really want to design a system where... If you do get defaulted, you can replace your risk without losing money. So the way the system's currently designed or the way we've currently architected is if you do get defaulted on, you will get paid out above market at the time of default. And with a conservative margin requirement, you'll get paid out considerably above market. So you're in the money. You're like kind of win at the moment of time yep. if you get defaulted on. The challenge, of course, is that if you want that risk, like if it's your hedge and you really want that risk back, you want to go replace that trade as quickly as possible. Like Allison alluded to with this, what we're calling our multi-token sponsor version, we've got a lot of designs on how to actually make that continuity of risk be a thing, much in the same way, you know, you can look at the maker system and keepers and like how there's an incentive to continue to maintain continuity in that system. We've got similar ideas that, uh, that we're exploring. Right. And that would be like, you basically calibrate that sort of liquidation penalty to the cost of re-executing the same trade effectively or something along those lines. Exactly. Yeah. And again, goes back to a composability thesis here mm. too, where if you had, say, a constant liquidity provider like Uniswap that you knew you could get liquidity from, then you can build this future world where, wait, a default happens. Oh, that's okay. I can automatically go and replace that risk from a known source of liquidity using a smart contract, ideally, right? Make this all be completely automated and you've got complete continuity. And I, I noticed in your white paper, you introduced the concept of margin netting. It sounded like that's maybe something to come in the future, but if you could just talk a bit about that, what that means and uh, you know how that might work, if you can talk about how that might work using this kind of technology. 
I think that's a good concept to probably define for your listeners too. Yep. So um, margin netting really refers to, um, let's say I'm a market maker and I enter into um, derivative trade with you, Louis, where you want to go long gold, right? So I'm short gold and I have to contribute some margin to that trade. And then Thomas wants to go and actually do the offsetting trade. So he wants to go short gold, but I have to enter in another agreement with him and contribute margin to that trade. I then, as a market maker, have no risk, but I've had to contribute capital into both of those trades. And if I have to contribute that capital for the lifetime of the trade, that's extremely expensive because there's a cost of capital. So margin netting would be the concept of like, well, hey, how can I, if I have no risk, if you guys are offsetting, how can I get credit for that so I don't have to commit capital against those two trades? Long and short answer is that, no pun intended, there are some... We're not entirely sure the best approach. We've got a number of like, this is a kind of in the research phase phase for us on how to efficiently do that mm-hmm. type of offsetting netting. And a lot of this looks, it's actually analogizes to like payment channels or lightning network stuff where you have offsetting trades in a lightning network and you actually want the hub to be able to re- release capital. So I think there's going to be a lot of research in that space that we're going to, able to be able to apply to solving this margin netting problem. Super interesting. Awesome. How does one in the multi-token sponsor version of the protocol that is to be released, how does one interact with that protocol to create a new market and a new synthetic token that doesn't previously exist? Yeah, sure. It actually looks really quite similar to how somebody would interact with us today. So Uma has built a, basically a Web3 dApp that uh, somebody could log on to to initialize uh, the parameters of and deploy a new smart contract. So you could log on and you could connect your MetaMask account and say, I want to create a derivative token on gold. Let me select my price feed. Let me select the parameters. Let me define the margin requirement subject to constraints, of course, and then one click deploy to the blockchain. And then and the management of that risk would all be on that website. And in the future, when we move towards a multi-token sponsor model, if you actually see that the contract that you want already exists, then you can basically contribute additional capital to it yourself, mm-hmm. to an existing one. Is there a cost associated with deploying smart contracts for these synthetic markets, essentially? You mean gas? Yeah. Like, What's the approximate cost for doing that on your UI? This is still early enough that I don't think we can give you a great answer, but we've got a really awesome team and we're pretty efficient on how we write our code. So as a case in point, creating an Augur market right now, depending on gas fees is like under V1 of Augur um, is really expensive. It's Mm -hmm. like hundreds of dollars. V2 of Augur, from what I understand, is going to lower that cost a lot. But, you know, we want to make it a low cost, easy experience to do this. And does that mean you won't, uh, like Augur and some other similar products out there, just uh, putting gas costs to one side, impose a kind of, I guess you could call it opportunity cost of capital cost, which you have to post rep, right? How do you guys think about those kind of incentives around, I guess you could call it like anti-spam or like making sure people are building markets that make sense? Is that really a concern for you or are you going to kind of keep it as open as possible? Louis continues to ask the good questions, right? Um, That's a a really difficult question to answer. So you want this thing to be as open as possible, Mm. but you also don't want spam and crap out there. So I I think we're just going to take an iterative approach on like how quickly we open things up to help make sure that there's some sense of quality and like thoughtfulness Mm. behind what markets people create. 
I also think that, you know, our protocol is really a bit more finely tuned for financial applications. So for example, Augur markets are really done in natural language. You can choose any time zone you want when you denote um, your market in natural language or any date that you want, even if it's like a weird holiday. Whereas, you know, our product parameters are a bit more tightly defined really for these financial derivatives. So really the choices are just which specific price feed or price source are you looking for, specifically which margin requirement are you looking for, and specifically which kind of payoff or margin calculation function are you going to use. Mm -hmm. And how are you thinking about which price feeds to enable users to select from? Are you just going to have a bunch of optionality or or it's going to be like a bring your own price feed system? Of course, this is my segue into the whole Oracle problem and how you guys are tackling that. Yeah, so let's get into it. Let's Um, do it. The Oracle problem, I think it's important to separate it into kind of two levels. There's first of all um, a reporting layer where you're just like getting data pushed onto the blockchain. That's the price for whatever this thing is. And then there's a dispute layer or verification layer, which is like if we disagree with that data, we need a way to resolve that. And and I, I frame it this way because I like the bring your own price feed idea, right? And that's actually the way our, uh, I like that phrasing. We might use that. It should be a flexible open finance technology where you can bring your own price feed coming from wherever. And if particularly think about this as a a, a bilateral agreement between, say, just the two of us, as long as you and I agree on whatever that price feed says, we're golden. We don't need a third party. We don't need an oracle. We just have this price feed coming in and we're like, yeah, that's right. The point of contention is when we disagree on what that price feed says. And then we need some sort of mechanism to verify that dispute or verify what that price should actually be. Mm -hmm. What are you guys thinking in terms of dispute resolution? I'll map out our framework for, so first Mm -hmm. of all, how we do this today, like right, right now is we just have a centralized price feed. So we make no attempt to state otherwise, like there's a price feed we're publishing and in dispute resolution, we would resolve that dispute. But the way this should be, right, uh, I'll map out like our, our framework for how we think about this problem. Our starting premise is that on the blockchain, any Oracle, or in this case, this um, verification layer, this dispute resolution layer, is bribable. There is some cost or price you can pay to bribe this system. And we like to define um, that minimum cost that you could pay to corrupt the system as our cost of corruption. And then separately, there is some known or calculatable profit that could be made if you were to corrupt the system. So go back to our bilateral trade on let's say it's gold thomas like uh if we both put in a 10 grand of margin and i could corrupt that price feed i could steal your 10 grand of margin that would be like the maximum money i could steal from this contract and so if you sum that across the entire network and do a worst case analysis you can actually calculate a profit from corruption number for how much money could be stolen if you were to corrupt this price feed so then we have these two numbers this cost of corruption this profit of corruption and our real challenge in this dispute resolution layer Um, is to figure out if we can build a mechanism where the cost of corrupting it is always greater than the profit you could make. And if so, if we can design a system where the cost of corruption is always greater than the profit from corruption, there is no economic incentive to break this system. And do you have, I mean, obviously it's early days, right? And this is all very bleeding edge stuff. You know, there's a lot of economic and technical issues to be dealt with here. But Fundamentally, how will the incentives work for this kind of thing? 
Yeah, totally. And and you're right to say that this is like early stuff, but we are going to be publishing more and talking about this more broadly. And again, I think it's an important research problem for the space as a whole. Mm. So at a high level, the profit from corruption number, there's really three steps here. We've got to measure our profit from corruption. We've got to measure our cost of corruption. And we've got to like build this mechanism to keep this inequality in check. The profit from corruption piece is, is observable. If contracts using the system are known to the system and follow a given interface, you can actually do the math to be like, hey, if somebody were to control the price feed, how much money could they steal from this contract? So cool. So we can actually go and like calculate this profit from corruption number. The cost of corruption goes then, okay, well, if there is a dispute, how are we going to resolve it? So we think ultimately you need some sort of voting system. Mm. So this would be a shelling point style system with tradable voting rights. So let's say that we do have these tradable voting rights and we ask our voters uh, whenever there's a dispute, they need to resolve and vote on what the truthful price is, or the correct price is. And we can show that as long as there's an honest majority of voters, that this thing will resolve correctly, this voting system will resolve correctly. And the logic there follows the same sort of 51% attack on a proof of work network, going in more detail. But as long as you have an honest majority of voters, people will vote truthfully. If these voting rights are tradable, then it lets us calculate the cost of corrupting the system. Effectively, the cost of corruption would be what it would take to buy or bribe 51% of these voting rights. And we can actually figure out what that number is. We can observe that number based on the market price of these tradable voting tokens. And so the voting tokens, how do they accrue value? Are they getting paid to make these decisions or what would that look like? So if you then go to the third part of what we're trying to prove, the Mm -hmm. fact that the cost of corruption is always greater than our profit from corruption, what you really defined here is that the voting token value or really the market cap of these voting tokens should always be greater than the total profit that could be stolen if you were to corrupt the system. So ultimately, they accrue value by that inequality being in check and then by the system growing, by more margin, by more usage of the protocol happening. So then a question you probably have is like, okay, how do you keep that inequality in check? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So again, work in progress. But what we've proposed is what we'll call a variable tax or variable fee system, where if the market cap of the voting tokens is high enough such that the cost of corrupting the system is above the profit from corruption number, we don't really, like we're golden. That's the case we want to be in. But as that market cap approaches the floor, we levy an increasing tax on the users of our system, on the contracts of the system, and we use that tax revenue to purchase voting rights in the open market to enforce this floor. So what we're really doing here is we're building a system that imposes what's in the collective best interest on all the individual contracts using the system. And because of this design, we actually, because it's in the individual best interest of all these users of the system, they want to pay this tax or they need to pay this tax to support this inequality and to keep the security of the system to maintain it. And is there any way to know kind of at a high level what that kind of tax is going to need to be as like a percentage of the notional traded or like this is obviously adding an inefficiency how do you know that that's going to make sense in the long term like economics of the system yes so we've done some initial economic modeling of this and we're very fortunate to have some like 
talented economists on our team that help us work on this. So more coming. But to share with you kind of the initial thoughts or how this works, there's really two scenarios. If you want to distill this and look at it at the extreme, there's two scenarios. There's a scenario where the system is growing, um, where usage of the protocol is growing. And in that case, the market cap of the voting rights should be trading above the floor because these tradable voting rights should reflect the market's expectation of future use yep. of the protocol. And in which case, you don't need to charge tax for anybody because the system is secure. So it's a great scenario if we're growing quickly. The other scenario then goes is, okay, what happens when that stops? Like, let's call it a steady state at some point in the future. What is the tax rate that we need to pay to incentivize voters to vote correctly? And the initial numbers here is like, I actually don't necessarily want to like share numbers because they're not sharp enough Mm -hmm. yet. But in our estimation, under really pretty conservative assumptions, you can get to a number that feels reasonable, particularly when you realize that the profit from corruption number is based on the margin in the system, not the total notional value of the system. And so if the margin in the system is is like one-tenth or one-one-hundredth of the total notional in the system, the types of fees you'd need to charge to secure that total notional seem very reasonable. And it seems like the kind of thing that people to have access to this type of system would or should be willing to pay for. Mm. Does that like yeah. reasonably answer your question? Yeah. I mean, I'm super excited to read about this in detail because if this does make sense, it's one of, I think, not to overstate things, but it sounds like a pretty key innovation for the whole space, right? Uh, in terms of game theory and incentive design and even just like dealing with the Oracle problem. So, yeah, I wish you all the best, certainly. Um, I do have a (laughs) follow-up question to this, the cost of corruption and the possible profit from corruption. This might sound a bit loaded because of the analogy or example I'm going to use, but in the film The Big Short, there's this scene where they're at the blackjack table and they're talking about basically uh, synthetic CDOs. I can't remember who it is. Uh, You know, they always have a famous person to like explain the situation in layman's terms, but I just Mm -hmm. forget who it is. But basically, they're talking about how you have the underlying contracts, basically. And then one of the problems that occurred in the financial crisis is that all of these hedge funds, institutional investors were then making synthetic bets based on those underlying contracts. And nobody really knew what the total notional size of all these synthetic bets were, right? Everybody is basically betting on each other's bets and it's all completely dark. You know, none of this is going through any kind of central clearinghouse sort of bits of paper getting shuffled around. Now, you might encounter the same kind of problem with UMA where people are leveraging your oracles because they're going to be bleeding edge. And if they work, you know, you're solving the oracle problem, etc. Your oracles are going to be in high demand. How do you know who's using them? Because the more people that are using them outside the UMA system specifically, they're basically increasing the possible profit from corrupting these oracles. You might not be able to see all this exposure that's building up. And, you know, therefore knowing what the ROI is on corrupting the system becomes very difficult. It breaks our system if we don't know who's using it. Mm. Augur terms this, I think, very accurately, parasitic usage. Yes. Right. So parasitic usage of this system means we actually are economic models for the security system break because there's just unknown usage of it. So really, I look at this as actually quite a technical problem of how do we eliminate or make parasitic usage extremely difficult. And I don't want to go too far off. We've got a, a few solutions um, in a public blockchain. There's lots of um, 
nuances or caveats because, well, the data is available. But, you know, Ethereum, for example, does have this concept of private variables where that private variable is not viewable on the blockchain. It's only viewable off the blockchain or to the smart contract that controls the scope. So long story short, I'll, I'll just don't want to go too deep, but it's uh, an area of considerable research where we've done a bunch of work and we need to do a bunch more, but it is a very real concern. What you are addressing mm-hmm. is a very real attack vector that if we can't control or bound parasitic usage, there is a potential that this doesn't work. Yeah. And just to add some statistics to Louis' analogy, I think in the financial crisis, there was about $300 billion worth of value that was exchanged among counterparties, and only $60 billion of it ever ended up like being accountable. And the other $240 billion or so, all the banks were just pointing fingers at each other, and no one knew mm-hmm. uh, who they were trading against. Uh, so anyways, more to come there. And, and I'd like to also say we're excited to read this research when it does mm-hmm. uh, matriculate. I'm sure the audience is as well. Let's shift gears into uh, the product roadmap. I think, Allison, you alluded that there's going to be a UI that's built on the Yuma protocol. Uh, right now, you've gone to market. It's called a US stocks uh, synthetic token that's been listed on DDEX. So what's been the feedback from that? And how has that translated into this UI that you hope to create on top of Yuma? Yeah, sure. So as a financial primitive, meaning as a way to build synthetic derivatives on the blockchain and uh, a decentralized oracle, um, the response from both the East and the West to our product has been resoundingly positive, that this piece of core infrastructure, this financial primitive needs to exist in some form in the future. And hopefully we're the team to provide that. <laughs> in terms of you know the hypothesis that we were trying to test with this US stocks token in particular, it really was around this hypothesis of universal market access. Are there people who are geographically constrained, who onboarded from fiat into crypto, who would really prefer to own fiat like dollar yielding assets? And sadly, I think that right now, it's just a little bit too early for that particular hypothesis to play out. Simply because right now the majority of the trading volume that's going through happens to be more for, you know, more of a speculative use case, you might say. The other part is really the overlap between DDEX users, DAI holders, and those who want but can't get access to U.S. stock index exposure. That actually does exist. I mean, we do have real open interest and real trading volume in the product, $1.1 million of open interest right now. But it's not particularly high and it's not actually something that I think will necessarily grow organically of its own accord on just DDEX alone, um, especially when you know a lot of the kind of onboarding volume that we're now seeing on places like local Ethereum or local Bitcoins is coming from Latin America um, and other countries throughout Southeast Asia and China. So I think it, it may be a long, uh, slightly longer route for us to kind of, you know, realize this vision of universal market access. And in the meantime, you know, we're trying to identify products that will gain traction with just the crypto users of today. And I think that what that means then is that really it's potentially two sets of products. One, synthetic asset tokens that are really simple and easy to understand for the average retail consumer. And two, which is perhaps this levered token sponsor position where people can really easily get levered long and short a number of underlying assets as well. So that's what's on our roadmap for later this year. Okay, so the focus is uh, around creating more synthetic assets and listing them on decentralized exchanges. 
rather than creating your own front end UI. I'm sure that's in the product roadmap somewhere as well, right? Yeah, but again, rem- remember our position is that we want to be like an enabling technology. So it's um, creating our own front end to demonstrate that might be a very good use of our time, but we're not here to be like the place that you come and go and buy all our products. We want to just be the technology that powers these. So this feels like a distribution game, right? To achieve universal market access, you need to find kind of localized services who are effectively going to resell these position tokens to an established user base of some sort, right? What do you think your role as the UMA team is in building that distribution? Uh, What are the incentives for, do you expect kind of centralized businesses to sell these positions? How do you think that develops? One slightly useful analogy for where we could see ourselves fitting into this future world is is to actually look at um, the ETF market and thinking of the ETF chassis, the technology used to actually create ETFs as like equivalent to our technology. So lots of companies create ETFs and they sell them in lots of places, but ETFs are this enabling technology that actually like lets people do all those things. That's where conceptually we'd love to live, where we become this enabling technology that has many token sponsors, quote unquote token sponsors, creating products using this and then distributing them wherever people want to buy them. So you think the token sponsor who's kind of more on the technical and market making side are actually going to be the ones that market and distribute the products to the end user? Or they partner with exchanges because a lot of these token sponsors might be more like think um, to go deeper into the traditional finance analogy, actually ETFs themselves, they have what are called authorized participants that are actually supporting the ETF product. And these are high frequency trading firms that most people have never heard of. Mm. Those people are not marketing experts, right? So there's people creating the product. There's people then marketing the product, maybe on an exchange or through some other avenue. And I think there's actually a lot of room for innovation there, Um, particularly as you do more of the truly open finance. Like perhaps there's some sort of financial product that's really applicable in China or wherever that, you know, sitting around this table, we couldn't really come up with. Mm. But somebody comes up with it and figures out how to market it there. That's a great use case. That's something, you know, that's a cool world that I know we'd all like love to see. Yeah. So, And I mean, something to keep in mind is that all of this technology is still very new and cutting edge, like you said. So, you know, the developer support that we're able to support and getting these contracts deployed and price feeds set up and, you know, all done safely and securely in a non-custodial way on the blockchain is actually a really valuable service for, you know, we've gotten quite a bit of inbound interest from people that want to create startup derivatives exchanges or want to issue their own financial uh, structured product because they have some innovation and they have kind of the financial concepts or the user prototypes in mind, but just uh, not quite sure how to make that happen securely on the blockchain. Can you, I mean, I know it's very, very early, but can you describe maybe what these token sponsors might look like? Because it's obviously a new kind of business that has a lot of analogous sort of People have this expertise to do this, but nobody's ever done it in this context, right? How do you find these people and and what will they look like? Yeah, just to broaden that question a little bit, if you can give us sort of like your go-to-market strategy with attracting these said token sponsors, that'd be really cool. So I think that there's a range of what these people could look like. It could be everything from what we'll call more like, um, let's call it a crypto market making shop that is uh, providing liquidity to centralized exchanges today. 
this might be an interesting way for them to trade more. It might be, you know, digital asset hedge funds that are, again, looking for cheap ways of putting on risk. But it could also be much more consumer-ish, like think of the people creating CDPs Mm -hmm. on Maker. Those people are putting on a trade of, of sorts, right? And yes, it's structured as a loan, but I don't think that there's a big reach where it's like a lot of those people are putting on this loan to get levered crypto exposure. What if instead those people wanted to be a token sponsor of an inverse token, an inverse crypto token, which by being on the other side of that token, they'd be levered long crypto, right? That might be a very real use case. So go to market, going back to earlier questions when you guys were talking about our market structure, we do have the hypothesis that this is going to be more of a hub and spoke market structure. So we want to help some of those hubs come into existence. And, you know, I don't think we need that many hubs for this to be a deep and liquid market. Mm -hmm. But we also want to leave open the possibility that there could be a relatively long tail of those hubs, of those token sponsors, by finding these sort of, let's call them DeFi nerds, if you will, that want to put on these trades, function in this role for whatever reason. And that, um, the DeFi nerds, is there, I mean, is this something? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) You know, obviously, you talked about a long tail, right? And what you're talking about there is a large number of individuals. But it seems like there might be a way of bringing these people together as one economic unit. I think you mentioned a a DAO to do this. Is that like, can you just sort of describe, if possible, what that might look like? I think the DAO is kind of more of an interesting hypothetical possibility given, you know, the composability of our protocol on chain. I think that to address your question more directly about how can you create this army of DeFi nerds, it actually comes down to uh, creating money-making arbitrage opportunities. That's what we've built into our system. So you have this um, financial derivative on, let's say, gold, and you have a price feed for gold, and you can evaluate what the fair market value of a gold token, you know, should be. Um, And if you see the market price of this token ever deviate from fair, then there's your arbitrage opportunity. And, you know, you see this across DEXs, you see this across the maker system and all the different lending protocols. If an arbitrage opportunity exists, it typically doesn't exist for that long. So um, that's kind of how we hope to, in the medium term, power this army. It's the beauty of an open global market, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And I'd actually even like underline what Allison said, but by highlighting that economic incentives in this world really matter. And I think some of the more crypto native people, I actually wish the space as a whole had a deeper appreciation for the fact that like, if an arbitrage opportunity doesn't exist, there might not be an incentive for market makers to come in and provide liquidity. And so I kind of think this is going to be a cool concept that I hope the space really like embraces where it's like, you got to incentivize people to do the role you want them to do. And in finance, that often means liquidity providers are getting paid via arbitrage or whatever else to show up and provide liquidity. Mm -hmm. Market makers certainly need opportunity, like you mentioned, to provide liquidity. Also, just DeFi needs opportunity in general for the ecosystem to grow, right? Yeah, it's cool that we're making all these sci-fi products, but what people really get drawn in to DeFi for, and you know, I think why they will stick around is for these different return opportunities. Mm -hmm. So some sort of like 
friendly UI to like a DeFi nerd to provide this who isn't as technical as as you would wish. I think that's like the real billion dollar idea. Anyways, would love to pivot into, I suppose, like- I guess we we talked about how market makers and network participants might make money, but uh, you guys have raised venture capital. That was my question. How are you guys (laughs) going to make money? This goes back to the the quote unquote Oracle problem, right? Which again, I'm not, I'm not sure I like that name for it, but our decentralized Oracle with these voting tokens is our business plan. So we really look at ourselves in the business of providing these price feeds or providing verification of these price feeds. And by business, I mean free open source protocol, like check out our GitHub, our code's up there. But we're building an infrastructure where the way we capture value is by building this decentralized oracle that's the best way to verify disputes around price feeds. And uh, one question I forgot to ask when you were going into detail about the oracle system, where did you draw inspiration from to come up with that idea? I'm, I'm sure you work also with a team of individuals and feel free to give them a shout out as well. But I'm curious, like, are, are there any sort of analogous uh, systems out there which inspired you to come up with that solution? Allison? No, no. Our whole team, I mean, again, we just have a fun interdisciplinary team. Why I love the space, right, is that you get to talk with like distributed system engineers and you get to talk with economists and you get to talk to finance people. And so you're just trying to bring all those perspectives around the table is is super fun. I'd also add economics, like legit economics. Um, One of my best friends who's an advisor to us is an actual professor of economics. And I feel like he's a bit of a secret weapon for us because you can go and describe to him like a problem you have in crypto. And he's like, yeah, you should go look at the 40 years of economic theory like in this space. And if there's something else that I think crypto really needs to do as an industry, it's like wake up and read what's out there, Mm. particularly in the field of economics, you know, mechanism design, applied game theory, all that kind of stuff. Um, There's a lot out there. Let's shift gears to uh, really the last topic I have. I'm sure Louis will fall in with a couple other questions as well. I would love a glimpse into your uh, regulatory strategy, whatever you can reveal. You know, in my head, what you're doing is somewhere in the realm of the CFTC's jurisdiction, also in the realm of the SEC's jurisdiction, because uh, you are providing derivative sort of synthetic exposure. But at the same time, there's a primary issuance element with the token how, how do you think about that? And how do you think about, how do you even explain this to regulators? I'd be curious to hear that as well. So we're using derivative concepts. We don't shy away from the fact that these are um, using derivatives under the surface to create these products. I'm not a lawyer, right? Uh, and uh, we take reg- we do take regulation very seriously. And you know we spend a lot of time and brain power on thinking about how to do things the right way. The first point I'd make is that in under U.S. law, at least, derivatives are not regulated by the SEC unless they are derivatives on securities. So if you're writing a derivative on a security, it's duly regulated by the CFTC and the SEC. So that means a derivative on Apple is regulated by both. An index or a basket of securities is considered an index and not a security under U.S. law. So a derivative on the S&P 500 is considered non-security-based swap. It's a derivative, not a security. So again, what we want to do is just be thoughtful on how we engineer and operate our system. We are a technology provider. We're purely providing the technology. We're not creating any these products. And unfortunately, these products really aren't accessible to U.S. people or can't be accessible to U.S. people unless they're on a listed and regulated derivatives exchange. And so, you know, play by the rules of the game. Do it right. The thing that I'd also just 
highlight the thesis, universal market access, that's for people that are not in America, right? right. <laughs> so people in the US aren't interested in these products. We're not building products for them and they can't touch our products under current law. So we really are trying to build a technology that gets used outside the US to reach non-US people. So what's the composition of your team look like at the moment? So we're nine people right now. Me, Allison, um, uh, four uh, like blockchain engineers that are awesome, awesome people. One financial engineer. I think a very interesting and unusual addition to our team is the fact that we actually have a financial engineer on our team. Uh, one economist and one, uh, one product person. So, you know, it's, um, it's fun. It's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Any, any roles that you're hiring for that you want to advertise on this podcast? Yeah. You know, we're, we're hiring for smart people in all honesty. Focus is probably still more on the engineering side, but people that have blockchain finance knowledge, but really on the engineering side. And we're a team where we um, all teach each other a lot of things. So uh, the interdisciplinary aspect is um, super fun. Awesome. And where can people get in touch with you uh, to reach out about uh, the job postings or or just read about your work in general? Twitter. Our Twitter handle is uh, at uh, UMA, UMA Protocol. Uh, our website, umaproject.org. Hello at umaproject.org. Yeah, there's a, a Slack channel on our GitHub that people can join too. Awesome. Thanks for joining, Hardin Allison. It's been a distinct pleasure to have you on. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about UMA, check out the show notes included in your podcast and remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. If you have any questions or comments, reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or The Wire blog, whatever works for you. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again for listening.